Welcome to the Clinical Education Initiative podcast, Conversations with CEI, where we feature conversations with clinical experts, their experience and insights on current health issues in the areas of HIV, primary care and prevention, sexual health, hepatitis C, and drug user health. Hello, I'm Tony Urbina, the Medical Director for CEI's HIV Primary Care and Prevention Center of Excellence. I am a provider and professor of medicine who has been working in HIV and LGBTQ health for over 20 years. The clinical innovation of antiretroviral treatment for HIV is a major public health victory that has transformed the shape of the epidemic. Healthcare professionals must remain committed to reaching every person with HIV, which means not only developing new clinical technologies, but also the strategies to implement them equitably. Long-acting injectable antiretroviral treatment is the newest clinical tool for ending the epidemic. How can we make sure that it reaches the people living with HIV who are not virally suppressed? In today's episode, I speak with Dr. Monica Gandhi about her research increasing access to long-acting injectables among vulnerable populations. Monica Gandhi is a professor of medicine and associate chief in the division of HIV, infectious diseases, and global medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. She is also the director of the UCSF Center for AIDS Research and the medical director of the HIV clinic, the very famous Ward 86 at San Francisco General Hospital. Her research focuses on HIV treatment and prevention optimization, HIV in women, adherence measurement in HIV and TB, adherence interventions, and the interplay between COVID-19 and HIV. Welcome, Monica, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. So I loved your presentation at Croy. I really <laughs> thought that it was the standout oral presentation, and I'm going to call you the little rock star of HIV. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but no, that, like that, that. yeah, you like that? <laughs> yeah. So let's start off. Um, could you give us an overview of the Ward 86 special programs on long-acting antiretrovirals to stop HIV? And I think you call it the SPLASH demonstration project. Is that correct? Yes, because that long name that you just said, if you take the first letter of everyone, it's SPLASH. Like everyone else in HIV medicine, we were very excited for long-acting treatments to come out because we've really only had oral pills. And even though oral pills are great and there's one pill once a day options to treat HIV, there are some individuals where it's just hard to take an oral pill every day to treat their HIV. And it has to do with so many reasons around the world. I think in our urban center in San Francisco, it's more from substance use from and from homelessness and from mental illness. And so because of that, we were excited for these long-acting antiretrovirals. The first regimen is, is cabotegravir and ropivirine put together, but they actually weren't studied in the patient populations which we serve. They were studied and approved by the FDA in patient populations who were kind of perfect, who could take their oral ART every day, their viral load had gone to undetectable, and then they switched over to injectables. So we wanted to try a new way with the long-actings. Yeah. And the FDA has like approved cab and ropivirine for like switch 
only, so patients that are already suppressed. So what kind of made you think about starting this program and how did you implement it? And did you have any barriers to starting this? Yes. <laughs> yes. Pushback. <laughs> yes. On all fronts. So, <laughs> I mean, so essentially when we actually had talked to the FDA and they said something really interesting, which is just true, that when a drug is approved, a provider can prescribe it whatever way they see fit, even if it's not exactly in the package insert, if they think that's going to benefit the patient uh, population. So in this case, it's like you said, these drugs of long-acting antiretroviral therapy have only been approved if you're virologically suppressed, doing great on your oral ART, and then you switch over. And we wanted to try in our demonstration project using long-acting ART, even in patients who couldn't take oral ART every day for a variety of reasons, were not virologically suppressed, but we thought these long-actings could suppress them. So we started a protocol. We wrote it up. It was really rigorous. It's really detailed. Did get pushback. Someone said to me, I hope you don't cause widespread resistance. (laughs) And another another person just said, you know, you're really um, kind of pushing the envelope here. But the thing about HIV doctors and I think HIV medicine, Mm -hmm. and this is just my personal feeling as a long time working in this field, is that we do push the envelope. We do think outside the box. I think we're creative and intrepid. And I think we're optimistic people, actually. We started this program and we tried the long-acting antiretrovirals, even in in patients who are viremic. And they are actually doing well. The patients who started without being virologically suppressed, they're doing well. But I think the magical aspect of it is when you talk to patients in the program, they say, this is the first time I've ever been virologically suppressed. This feels amazing. And I'm not I don't feel embarrassed to come into the clinic. I don't need to use speed to come into the clinic. Actually, one person said to us, because I I had the feeling of shame, I'm just going to come in and get my medication and then go about my day. Wow. That's amazing to have that transformation. When like you were um, thinking about designing the program, how did you think about adherence to clinic visits? So making sure that they came in for every two-month visit. What were your thoughts about that? And did you kind of separate out adherence to oral therapy versus adherence to the, to an actual clinic visit? What was yes. your thought process there? Yes. I mean, that's a great question because it is really different in a way. Like the, the patient does have to adhere, but all they have to adhere to is coming in and seeing us, which is really different than, than committing to taking a pill every day. And so we only allowed people in the program who did touch the clinic, who did come in regularly, whether they were coming in for incentives and gift cards and mm-hmm. to look at their foot or to look at their arm or, you know, whatever reason they were touching the clinic. We're not going to certainly do this in patients that we can't find. And we did ask them to verbally commit to come in regularly. And they did because I think they came in regularly because they started getting positively motivated. But we, we really did request adherence to coming in to the clinic visit. That was kind of all we asked. And then we said, please give us any contact information so we can keep on calling you to, to remind you to come in. And not only contact information, but even your friends, where you are in the city. If you're not living in a house, can we tell you, can you tell us where your tent is? I mean, it really was kind of a, an, an outreach. We do a lot of outreach to find them. You touched a little bit on 
some patient experiences that were very motivating to you. Do you have any other patient anecdotes that you can share with us? Yes. So my first patient who I started on this, and the first patient in the program was a patient who was, it was my patient and he couldn't take oral ART. He had a viral load of over 10 million. He had a CD4 count of 14. He was getting into eye issues. We were working him up for opportunistic infections. And he just said, I cannot do it. I cannot take oral ART every day. So we started him on long-acting cabotegravir and propivirine. The first dose is a higher dose. It's called the induction dose. We gave it to him by three and a half weeks later, right before his second dose. He was undetectable. He hugged me. He hugged the clinic nurse manager. He called his mom from the clinic. And he was went back to work after three months. He hadn't been to work for a very long time. He uh, drives a car a truck. He is like completely back to living life. He's like, I cannot believe how I feel because what happened to him is that he actually felt ill all the time because he was having such a high rate of iremia that it was right. really causing kind of flu-like symptoms. He was my first story that I felt like, oh wait, this could work. And then there was another patient who. This is a woman who I've had in my practice for a very long time. She can't take oral ART because of stigma. And it's not stigma from anyone else but herself. When she takes the medication, she gets nauseated and she immediately throws it up, whatever it is, because as she told me later, it makes her remember that she has HIV to take an HIV pill in her mouth. And we had gone through years, CD4 count very low in her 20s, viral load was about 200,000. And finally, they convinced her to start the long acting and again, virologically suppressed within a month. And we had to chase her around a little bit more. We had to call her a lot, but she absolutely comes in. She had a very bad cellulitis, but now she doesn't, which kept on coming back. And she's just feeling so much better. So there's this internal motivation that if, I mean, both of these patients were virologically suppressed for the first time in their lives. Yeah. Those are amazing stories. Besides like that personal success of patients becoming aviremic, do you ever incorporate U equals U into conversations with patients? And what does that mean in terms of like ending the epidemic? And how do patients yeah. respond to that? Yes, it's a great question because I was thinking about the latest HIV statistics from the CDC about incidents, and we're still getting 52% of our new infections in the South and Southeast, because in a way, not having virologic suppression obviously is which their lower rates of virologic suppression in the South and Southeast is driving forward transmission. And so U equals U is both personally motivating and a population motivating to say, if you're undetectable, you're not going to pass it on. So I do use that as a motivator when we talk to our patients. And in fact, the first patient that I mentioned did have a integrase inhibitor mutation from trying to take medications, but couldn't take it before. And frankly, was, was, could be passing that on. And so when I said, well, you're not going to pass it on if we can get you undetectable, it was very motivating for him. And same with the second woman who is married and her husband doesn't have HIV. So there are lots of reasons why U equals U comes into this. And also the fact that if you're suppressed, you can't gain resistance and resistance is really scary to people. Got it. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think we here in New York always looked to San Francisco for just progressive implementation of programs and interventions and things like that. But I, one of the things is that I know that your program is very well like resourced. How 
could other programs across the country or even in the world implement something like this that are not as well-funded as like UCSF? Yes. I mean, I think that's a really good question because we are often said, well, you're San Francisco and you get, you know, all these resources. Now, our clinic does serve publicly insured patients. So our resources are Ryan White Care funding, which, you know, any low-income clinic does qualify for Ryan White Care. And the Ryan White Care funding was really the main funding that helped us implement because it was case management to call patients. And it was also one one person we did hire, and I will say that we got resources, and it was only one. Otherwise, we use existing staff, and that was a farm tech, because a pharmacy technician can actually call the insurance company, which is quite a bit of work, and mm-hmm. get the PA for the prior authorization for the cabotegravir and ropivirine. But otherwise, we used our existing staff. New York is very progressive, and what we actually wanted to do is put it in writing. We just published July 4th in Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, the paper on this program. And we wanted to put it in writing, including a link to the protocol, which is up on the Getting to Zero website in San Francisco. And the protocol is very step-by-step. And it really doesn't take, like rocket science, the protocol is very, I think, doable. And by linking to the protocol, we're hoping other clinics will emulate this program, also do demonstration projects, trying this in patients who can't take oral ART. And then we can pool all of our data together and really, I hope, someday convince the FDA to put it on their guidelines. So I actually think the reason to do it is to get other people to do it. And I think that's going to happen. That's amazing. It's already happening. People always tell me, like, whenever I see them, they're like, oh, we're, we're, we've, we haven't published it yet, but we're, we're completely trying this in, in environment patients. Yeah, no, I am sense that speaking with other providers here in New York as well. I think your example has really kind of created this enthusiasm about really testing out this treatment in those. We're not the Wild West. That's how I said We're not. We're not. Like, yeah, we're West, but we're not the Wild West. This is, this, is, this is not unreasonable. It's actually very reasonable. I think so. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you just kind of want to tell us, so now that you've been doing this for a while, what's been the outcome? So I know that you've reported two treatment failures, right? There's been two failures. Anybody else or what's, what's some kind of the latest with, the, with your cohort? Yes. So we reported in the analyst paper on the first 133 patients that we started on long-acting antiretroviral therapy. And now we have 204 people on long-acting cabotegravir and ropivirine. We have more failures. We have a total of four, but our overall, our virologic failure rate is the same as it was in the clinical trials, which is about 1.5%. So we're still sitting at where Flare, Atlas, and Atlas 2M showed us there are going to be some failures. And we have on those on the failures, some patients, the failures, they really can't take oral ART. So we've added lenacapavir, if they, which is the other long acting now available as of December, 2022 for multidrug resistant HIV. And lenacapavir is given every six months and that's working. So we are going to put in a abstract to CROI, which we hope We'll look at across three centers using lenacapavir and cabotegravir and ropivirine together as an example of what we can do in the future if people can't take, if there's resistance on cabotegravir, ropivirine alone. Right. So that's um, exciting as um, well. And do you foresee a time when maybe they'll have a, just a fully suppressive regimen that's an injectable that'll last even longer than Q6 even? Yeah. I mean, I do... I'm so excited about the idea of implants and TAF implants and 
other medications that you can put in for longer or once yearly. I mean, we've all learned from bisphosphonates and we've learned from the anti-psychiatric medication world and contraceptives. So we had to keep on learning from those worlds about giving longer and longer acting, PrEP and ART. I just think we are on a precipice of a new revolution in HIV medicine. HIV just keeps on giving, like meaning it's so exciting to be in it because we are so lucky, you know, to have all these advances and you miss, like you blink and something new has happened. So I think it, yes, I think we're on the precipice of getting better formulations. Well, Monica, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. And I am love how um, you really combine like the latest science and technology, but also with this kind of community outreach and compassion. I mean, it's so evident that you really yeah. genuinely care about your community and our uh, patients living with HIV. So I'm sure that's also been a large part of the success of your program as well. Thank you anyway, so much. No, I yeah. do love that. And I just want to end by just asking Monica, just does she have any kind of announcements? I know you mentioned the um, Annals of Internal Medicine was published and anything else you kind of want to announce to our audience? Okay, well, we're not doing anything else crazier than this, but I will say that we are going to also present at Croy, or at least put in an abstract, the update on the program, because I think, again, the more and more numbers of patients that you have in a program demonstration project like this, it gives people more confidence. And then we are getting calls from providers around the country who are doing the same thing. So we're trying to amass a bigger case series from different centers so that there's going to be generalizability across centers. And then we're hoping the drug company is actually working on a true trial in viremic participants. They've promised to do that. And either in the ACTG or working aside the ACTG. So all of that will happen so that hopefully we'll get to, to have this particular use of long-acting and viremic people on the guidelines someday. Thank you for listening to our conversation today. Listeners can find the link to Dr. Gandhi's new publication in the podcast notes. To learn more, go to ceitraining.org. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for a new episode of Conversations with CEI. Visit us at ceitraining.org and follow us on CEI social media platforms.